famous for his holiness and his serenity. His reputation, in fact, reached hell itself. So the devil himself took three of his best demons with him to tempt this monk. When they reached the wilderness, they found the monk sitting at the mouth of the cave, of course, with a serene look on his face. The first demon walked up to the monk and planted in his mind the temptations of great power with visions of kingdoms and glory. But the face of the monk remained serene. So the second demon, up to the challenge, walked up to the monk and planted in his mind the temptation of great wealth with visions of silver and gold and all that money can buy. But the face of the monk was serene. The third demon walked up to the monk and planted in his mind the temptation of sensuous pleasure, which, which well, things I won't describe here. But the face of the monk remained serene. Annoyed, the devil barked, move over, I'll show you what's never failed. So the devil strolled up beside the monk, leaned over and whispered, have you heard the news? Your old classmate Makarios has just been named Bishop of Alexandria. And the face of the monk scowled. After David defeated Goliath, as we read last week, he joined the army of Israel. And David became very successful, didn't he? In verse 5, whatever mission Saul sent him on, David was so successful that Saul gave him a high rank in the army. Verse 14 tells us likewise, in everything David did, he had great success because the Lord was with him. David also became very popular. The second half of verse 5 we're told this pleased all the troops and Saul's officers as well. And his popularity spread beyond the military throughout the whole nation, as it tells us in verse 16. All Israel and Judah, that's the whole nation, loved David because he led them in their military campaigns. Everyone loved David. Well, everyone but one person, King Saul. His heart got infected by this powerful sickness of the soul that we're all far too familiar with called envy. As one commentator put it, an implacable jealousy was stirred in Saul. This passage teaches us about envy. It illustrates for us, first of all, the meaning of envy, and second of all, the healing of envy. First, let's see how it teaches us about the meaning of envy. What is envy anyway? What is it? Here's how 18th century theologian Jonathan Edwards defines it in his book, Charity and Its Fruits. He says, Envy may be defined to be a spirit of dissatisfaction with and opposition to the prosperity and happiness of others as compared to our own. Or, in other words, envy is simply wanting what someone else has and then resenting them for having it. Envy 
is bitterness that things are better for someone else than for you. Do you recognize this in your own life? Let's dig deeper. There are two things lying at the heart of envy, according to this passage. First, there's angry pride. We're told in verses 6 and 7, after David defeated Goliath, the women came out from all the towns of Israel with singing and dancing, with joyful songs and with timbrels and lyres, which are instruments. This is sort of their championship parade, sort of like the one that's going to be hosted next week in Atlanta. I just, I don't really care. (laughs) The people sang a song. Saul has slain his thousands and David his ten thousands. See, David was getting higher praise than Saul and Saul just couldn't handle it. And we're told in verse 8, Saul was very angry, very angry. This refrain displeased him greatly. Why? Well, this is what he complains. They have credited David with tens of thousands. Do you hear that? I deserve more credit for the victory. Never mind the fact that as we read in the story last week, Saul was hiding out with the cheese in the back instead of fighting himself. See, envy is the hidden belief that I deserve more than I've gotten. I deserve what they've gotten. And the anger that results when I don't get it. Edwards writes, envy is the pride, no, it is pride that is the great root and source of envy. And so when your coworker gets a raise or a promotion and you don't, envy is the thing that makes you say, I'm better than they are. Or at least they're not even all that great. Angry pride lies at the heart of envy, but so also does fear. Three times the passage tells us that Saul feared David. Verse 12, Saul was afraid of David because the Lord was with David but had departed from Saul. Verse 15, when Saul saw how successful David was, he was afraid of him. Verse 29, Saul became still more afraid of him. Uh, Maybe fear isn't exactly the word or the emotion that you typically associate with envy when you feel it welling up in your heart. But here's what this passage tells us. Envy is a form of fear because envy makes you feel threatened. For Saul, David not only became a threat to his popularity, it became a threat to Saul's throne and therefore his identity. We envy because we feel a threat to our sense of security, a threat to our sense of meaning, even. Watching another friend perhaps getting married when I'm not makes me feel unwanted, maybe unloved. A threat to our identity, right, where where I, I need my children to be as well behaved as those other children, or I must be a bad parent. Mustn't I? Envy is a form of fear. Envy is a form of angry pride. Do you see this in your heart? But notice a couple other things this passage teaches us about envy as well. 
Envy is petty, almost always petty. Listen to just how weeny Saul sounds here. Verse 8, they have credited David with tens of thousands, but me with only thousands. I mean, here's the king of Israel whose nation just overcame the mighty Philistines, and all he remembers is what songs the crowd sang, what chants the crowds chanted, and most especially what they said about him. Think about the things that trigger our envy. It's the lamest stuff sometimes. Envy is petty. Envy is misery. Envy makes you miserable. uh, Proverbs 14, verse 30, couldn't be truer. A heart at peace gives life to the body, but envy rots the bones. I mean, when you're struggling with envy, you feel like junk, right? It's a terrible feeling. We're told in verse 9, and from that time on, Saul kept a close eye on David. You ever notice that when you're struggling with envy, you start to obsess about the person. You you watch their every move. You can't get them out of your mind. You're miserable that way. I think I've shared in the past how one of the examples of envy in my life is the way that I look upon dear friends who are do-it-yourself gurus. Some of you guys just pull these incredible home renovation projects together with such ease, and then they post pictures about it on Facebook just to rub it in. Steve Davis. Where are you at? Oh, you're going to have to listen to that recording. I was noticing yesterday as I was putting together my little, very simple IKEA cabinets, stressing a little bit about making sure I got things aligned rightly, the reputation in my home being that even with those instructions, I still can't get it right, was just noticing in my own heart in the slightest sort of ways, almost as if I had a a crowd of do-it-yourself experts surrounding me, feeling almost this stress of doing well and doing right, and noticing how that just took all the joy out of the work. Just all the pleasure and delight. And at one point, Paula came in and said, hey, doesn't this look great? I mean, don't you feel great? I said, no, not at all, right? I'm glad it's done, but no, that wasn't pleasurable. And it's a creeping sense of envy that was undercutting my joy. Because envy is misery. Because envy, in fact, you see, the Bible instructs us, is a little bit of a taste of hell. Maybe that sounds extreme to you. Again, Jonathan Edwards, the theologian, writes this, I think, very helpfully, very insightfully. The spirit of envy is very contrary to the spirit of heaven, where all rejoice in the happiness of others. And it is the very spirit of hell itself that itself feeds on the ruin of the prosperity and the happiness of others. Envy is the disposition of hell and partakes of its misery. Envy is petty in its misery. Envy ruins relationships. How? Well, enviers become harsh critics, don't they? We make ourselves feel better or look better by 
cutting down the accomplishments of the person that we're envying. Well, she's not that good anyway. Or he just got really lucky. That's all it was. Enviers also start to use people as tools in their struggle with envy. You ever notice here how, how Saul blatantly uses his daughters and their marriages as a way to get back at David? And we do this all the time. I read an article by Harvard Business Review that discussed the dynamics of envy in the workplace, and it pointed this out. Enviers also distance themselves, stop talking to them, stop working with them, even when it's detrimental to your own work. We experience the emotion more intensely when we're near the people we envy, so we avoid them. I mean, notice how Saul tries to distance David. Verse 13, so he sent David away from him. Just get him out of my sight. I want to get rid of the problem, though the problem's right here, not out there. He sent David away and gave him command over thousands of men. I personally have struggled in this regard in noticing how my envy has actually affected relationships as well. Too often we say to ourselves, well, envy is just that gross feeling I carry inside, but it doesn't hurt anyone else. Actually, it does. It always spills over. As I have noticed, the envy of my heart towards other pastors that perhaps by some measurements are more successful than I, or other ministries, even in this city, that though incredibly supportive and even prayerful of us, finding a creeping competitive spirit in my heart towards those ministries. And not only just that that disrupts the way that I feel about those ministries, I've seen, I've seen and repented of the way that it's affected my relationships with those pastors, where I kind of don't want to hang with them, uh, where I kind of don't want to be close to them, even when I know that I have so much to learn from them, even when in another way I crave their friendship and where I would benefit from their ministries. And yet, envy causes us to distance ourselves, to remove the problem. Envy ruins relationships. And verse 29 tells us that Saul became so consumed with envy that David remained his enemy the rest of his days. Envy's petty, envy's misery, envy ruins relationships, envy is violence. Multiple times, Saul schemes to send David onto the battlefield, did you get it, with the expressed purpose of getting him killed. In verse 17, Saul said to himself, I will not, I will not raise a hand against him. Let the Philistines do that. In verse 21, I'll give her, his daughter, to him, he thought, so that she may be a snare to him and so that the hand of the Philistines may be against him. So David, in trying to prove his worth and trying to earn the bride price to marry his daughter, Saul knew perhaps David might take unnecessary risks, greater risks on the battlefield, and so die. But sometimes the violence of Saul's intentions were not so subtle, right? You saw that in verse 10 through 12, where one, on one occasion, Saul had a spear in his hand, we're told, and he hurled it at David, 
saying to himself, I'll pin David to the wall. But David eluded him twice. Old Testament scholar Joyce Baldwin offers some keen insights here. She writes, this illustrates the close connection between jealousy or envy and murder. Given the chance, it will express itself in an attempt to kill. In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus taught that anger is a form of murder in the heart. If envy is a form of anger, then it's not surprising that envy does violence to a person in our hearts. We want to off the competition. We want to tear down the person that has gained what we want. Sometimes with even violent intentions. I mean, friends, it's, it's really worth digging in and asking yourself, who have you begun to kill in your heart because of envy? Who have you already begun to do violence to verbally, emotionally, financially, maybe physically, even if not fatally, because of envy? I mean, do we get this? Envy is really bad. A cancer of the soul. The Bible was not kidding when it consistently warned us again and again about the destructiveness of envy. Galatians 5 lists it as one of the works of flesh. Alongside idolatry, sexual immorality, fits of rage. Titus 3 names envy as one of the chief marks of a life estranged from the kindness and the love of God. James 3 identifies envy as the source of all kinds of evil in the Christian community. Listen to this. Where you have envy and selfish ambition, there you find disorder and every evil practice. Cain killed Abel because of envy. The religious leaders killed Jesus because of envy. What makes us think that we're the exception? So how do you deal with it? How do you deal with it? What do you do with your envy? If the heart of envy is angry pride and fear, then how do you cultivate the needed humility of heart and security of heart? We looked at the meaning of envy. Let's look at the healing of envy. Number one, I want to draw your attention to confession. If I can finish up by giving you three C's here. Confession. The confession of our sins of envy. One of the articles I mentioned earlier offered some helpful wisdom, though from a non-religious source, still greatly insightful. Envy is difficult to manage in part because it's hard to admit that we harbor such a socially unacceptable emotion. It said, our discomfort calls us to conceal and deny our feelings, and that makes things worse. Repressed envy inevitably resurfaces stronger than ever. I mean, it's true. We know envy is sort of gross and sort of not acceptable, and so we hide it. It's hard to admit, but we're dishonest with ourselves. We assume that if we just don't talk about it or acknowledge it, it might go away, when in fact, inevitably, it resurfaces stronger than ever. Dear friends, confess your envy to a merciful God. He's ready to forgive. 
Bring your proud and fearful and angry, envious hearts before God and be washed in the blood of Jesus. One of the reasons why confessing your sins of envy is so important is because in so humbling yourself before the Lord, you're doing direct battle against the angry pride that feels so entitled to have what everyone else has. Which brings us to the second C. Not just confession, but contentment. There's so much we could say about this, but briefly here, it's so important to cultivate contentment with our station in life. And how do you grow in contentment? Here's one critical way. It's really simple, but vital to growing in contentment and therefore in overcoming envy, and that is this, giving thanks. Do you give thanks for the things that you have and the things that you are on a regular basis? Do you give thanks for the things that they have and the things that they are? Those ones you're so tempted to envy on a regular basis. Instead of obsessing over the things that you don't have and the things that you're not. Gratitude is crucial to growing in contentment because gratitude humbles our hearts and acknowledges that all that we are and all that we have is not from me but given as a gift from the Lord. Giving thanks chips away at our envy. Which brings us to our third and last C. Not just confession and contentment, but finally, Christ. Listen, if there was someone who had a right to be envious in this passage, it was Jonathan. Jonathan, the son of Saul, introduced there in verse 1. Jonathan was to be Saul's successor as king. And because of Saul's failures, David would now be the next king, and Jonathan would be left out. If anyone should be tempted to envy, it should be Jonathan. But look at Jonathan. Verse 1 tells us that he became one in spirit with David. Verse 3 tells us that he made a covenant with David. That's a, a relationship of promised commitment made before God. Not just friendship, but promised friendship. Twice in verses 1 and 3 we're told that Jonathan loved David as himself. That's how committed he was to David, to giving David himself, loving, you might say, incarnationally, stepping into the flesh and the life and the interests of David. And verse 4 tells us that David, sorry, Jonathan, took off the robe he was wearing and gave it to David, along with the tunic and even his sword, his bow, and his belt. And what is he doing here but handing over to David all of his royal prerogatives. As one commentator observes, this is a virtual abdication by Jonathan, the crown prince. Here you go, David. You be king. Who does that? 
Jonathan is supposed to be David's rival to the throne, but instead he made David his best friend. And the author of this passage, the way the story is crafted, is clearly presenting Jonathan as a contrast to envious Saul. Look at Jonathan. You want a way out? Look at Jonathan. More than that, look at the one to whom Jonathan's life points. Jesus had more reason than anyone to succumb to the evils of envy. Having accepted a low station in life, being born into poverty, having no recognition or worldly glory, Jesus, the eternally glorious one, had every reason to begrudge us our comforts, our love of praise, our failure to recognize him for who he really was having actually merited God's favor, actually deserving it, actually being entitled to the blessing of God, Jesus had every reason to begrudge us who receive God's kindness so freely, not deserving it, yet getting it, not being entitled to it, and yet generously receiving from the hand of the Father, and yet this Jesus, the greater Jonathan, this Jesus united himself to us. He didn't pull away, he pushed in all the way in that he might save us. He loved us as himself, not just incarnating in principle, but actually taking on human flesh, loving us, always putting our interest before his own. Jesus, who made a covenant with us, a promise before God that he would rescue us, indeed becoming by covenant the friend of sinners, as we sung earlier. Jesus, who took off his royal robe, as it were, giving up royal prerogatives, letting himself be stripped naked on the cross, subjecting himself to the misery of hell that enviers like us actually deserve so that in him we might be welcomed into the joy of heaven. This Jesus who then robes us with his righteousness, declaring us clean of all our sin, even the envy of our hearts, clothing us in Christ. As it says in Galatians 3, for all of you who were baptized into Christ have been clothed in Christ. And like the old hymn by Nicholas Zinzendorf sings, Jesus, thy blood and righteousness, my beauty are my glorious dress. Jesus, who gave us his place in the family of God. Jesus, who gave us his seat at the Father's table. Jesus, who gave us his name. Jesus, who gave us his broken body and shed blood that we might have peace with God. Do you know the love of Jesus, this Jesus, that he might melt you of all that arrogant pride and quiet the anger of entitlement and strengthen your heart with gospel security 
in the face of all perceived threats from other people. That you might know that you are loved, that you are right in him, that you are forgiven, that you are clean, that you are a child of the king because of the king who laid it all down. Because of the king who disrobed himself and robed you in royalty. Do you know this love that melts the envious heart? And that teaches us then to love like Jonathan. Indeed, to love like Jesus. Do you want this heart? Do you want a changed heart? He makes it available to you. Come to Jesus, dear friends. Come to Jesus. Let's pray. And so we come to you, Lord, asking for your help, your mercy. We cannot change our own envious hearts. We have no power to do that. And so we plead for you and your mercy to help us to see you. We confess the envy of our hearts. We long for the contentment of grace. And we want to see Christ, the greater Jonathan. So please make your home with us, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. Let's stand together and let's sing.